Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 12, starting at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not, give God, did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. 
This is God's word. Morning. Uh, let me have my welcome. My name's Matt Fuller. If we've not met, and there's just one more sort of everyday story from the life of uh, Acts. I'm sure you've been a, uh, had an angel release you from prison and that sort of thing. Happens all the time. So uh, uh, let's have a little. We'll, uh, let's pray. Let's pray that God will help us understand this rightly. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, these are extraordinary days in the early church. And uh, we pray for ourselves that we'd learn rightly what uh, was extraordinary and, and unlikely for us to see in our lifetime, what is very common and very normal. Father, please, would you be the one speaking? Would you impress the truth upon our hearts that we can have confidence in you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, one or two might remember back in uh, February time, we, this book was uh, advertised, encouraged from the front, uh, We Die Before We Came Here, which I'd never read, uh, and so I got round to reading uh, the last couple of weeks or so. It is terrific. Uh, not too long, which uh, has advantages for some. And, uh, but it is terrific. It's a very stirring, moving account of um, uh, a couple, uh, Emily and Stephen Foreman, who uh, went out with their three young children to, they keep it under wraps, but a, a North African country, an Islamic country, uh, as missionaries a number of years ago. And they grew to love the, uh, they hated it at first, actually, uh, but they grew to love the people very much, had some very good friends, uh, love aspects of the culture, although uh, the children never quite got over eating goat's brain from the skull. That was never their favorite uh, delicacy. Uh, want an eyeball? No, I'm five. Um, I don't eat eyeballs, thank you, uh, and other such things. But um, very moving because a few years after being there, the husband is shot dead in the street by Islamic extremists, very unhappy at the work they know that uh, Stephen and the family have been involved in out there. Uh, and yet how that was processed uh, and how indeed the wife and the children returned and uh, still live out there. But very striking is that there are plenty of warnings. Uh, the husband, Stephen, is warned, you know, look, they're going to get you. Um, we are going to kill you. And he just keeps on going. In fact, uh, just two nights before he died, he's talking to one friend, local friend, who'd made their Amir. He says, Amir, I don't know the number of my days, I could die tomorrow. Life is too short. But while we still have breath in our bodies, we must obey God. That's what lasts. And two days later, he was shot. He's a very brave man in many ways. Look, I, I don't know what the future brings. I don't suppose it's enormously straightforward. But we must obey God. Got to tell people about Jesus. That's what they need more than anything else. And in the end, well, Jesus wins. We've got to tell people about him. Let me encourage you. It's a deeply stirring book to read. Now, uh, you have to know what to expect in the Christian life. And uh, here's a family who said, look, uh, we, we know what it may involve. But we're ready for that. But individually, we all need to 
have realistic expectations of the Christian life. You, you have to know that broadly the pattern is hardship now, glory later of the Christian life. Somewhat inherent to being a Christian. You need to know that personally or life's disappointments will just derail you. Just in the things that go wrong, you can just give up. It's hard sometimes. But here, particularly in the book of Acts and Acts chapter 12, you have to know it collectively as a church, as churches in an area, as a nation. Hardships come. Adversity comes. Here in the book of Acts, the kingdom of Jesus Christ grows, but always in adversity. But you've just got to know that that's the pattern. Uh, and it is worth living, of course, if that's the pattern, if you put it this way. Imagine someone came to you this week and said, uh, do you know next week is getting back down to zero again? It's going to, uh, uh, a white Easter. Um, some are even threatening. Um, it's going to be very cold again next week. But uh, here we go. Here is uh, one week, uh, all expenses played, uh, paid. Uh, here's a week in Antigua for you. Everything paid for. It's quite warm at the moment. Uh, that'll cheer you up. And you think, oh, okay, well, what's the catch? No catch. No catch. You've got to fly there. That's what you've got to do. And um, the air currents, they're all a bit wibbly at the moment. That's a technical term. Uh, and uh, so there will be some turbulence on the flight. You say, well, it's fine. It's turbulence. You know, I've dealt with that before. You know, most flights have that. Well, that will be okay. You take that deal. And, of course, you take off, and the, the, the captain's voice comes over the, uh, the phone. The, the tannoy, that's not even the right word. Anyway, anyway the, the, the speakers, uh, about two hours into the flight, and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please put your seatbelts on. We are entering a period of turbulence. You think, well, I've done turbulence before. You never quite know what level it is. Sometimes turbulence is mildly inconvenient as the ice in your glass is shaken a little bit. Uh, sometimes, you know, you've been on those flights when uh, and all of a sudden you drop about a hundred meters. Oh, that's, 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 uh, that's proper turbulence. That's not turbulence. That's, that's scary. Uh, you know, we've probably all done both of those types of flights. The sort of little jiggle of turbulence and the sort of, uh, the sort of, uh, have you ever been on a flight where the things have actually come down? That's a little unnerving. Um, only once have I known that. And then there's, ladies and gentlemen, that's a malfunction. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. 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 We don't need them, but the plane's malfunctioning. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. But uh, that's a bit unnerving, but turbulence. But, if you, but you know you're going to get there. The turbulence is unpleasant. You know you're going to get there. And Acts 12 says, look, there'll be periods in history when the turbulence is fairly intense. There'll be periods in history where the, the, the opposition, the persecution is very hard. But you'll get there. You'll get to Glory. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ will grow. It's not linear. You just look through history. There's sort of expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction a little bit in, in different areas around the globe. But the kingdom is growing overall. But you have to hold those two things together. Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. It's unstoppable. And it grows through adversity and setback. You've got to have both those tracks in place. You don't have the first, you just give up. You don't have the second, well, you'll wonder what's going on. You've got to have them both. Jesus is growing his kingdom, it's unstoppable, and setback always comes. There's always hardship at points. So here we are in Acts chapter 12, and uh, this is going to be our last look um, in uh, the book of Acts uh, until next year, probably. 
Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, please or not, well, that's up to you. But uh, here's our last look uh, in the book of Acts, certainly for um, 2018. And in chapter 12, it's a, a last long look also at the church in Jerusalem before Luke concentrates on uh, church planting, the, the, the gospel going out to the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, particularly under the apostle Paul. And chapter 12, it's given to us here so that we... But we keep going even in the face of fierce opposition as Christians. And here the opponent is quite terrifying, Herod. Don't get confused. This is not uh, Herod the Great around at the time of Jesus' birth. You know, the wise men visit and he kills all the children. It's not Herod the Great. That's grandfather of this Herod. Uh, It's not Herod who kills John the Baptist. That's uncle of this Herod. Uh, but uh, if, you, if you're called Herod and you rule in Israel, you're generally not a particularly nice bloke. Uh, that's how it works. Partly because you're illegitimate. The whole family, they're not legitim- legitimate Israelites. They're technically Edomites. So they're always um, trying to suppress, suppress through persecution to justify their role. But um, this Herod, the secular sources will tell us he was born in about 10 AD, so this is about 44 AD he dies, we know that. So he's in his mid-30s at this point. He grew up in Rome, his childhood friend. Well, he, he knew Caligula and Claudius, who would go on to be emperors, so he's pretty well connected. Uh, he was bankrupt in his 20s, but gets released eventually. And uh, his childhood chums, the emperor, grant him land, so he becomes king of the Jews in 41 AD. But his reign is not a long one. So these events here, they're about a decade after resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. But we're going to look at Herod, because he's the sort of dominant character in one sense, apart from it's all an illusion. He is the emperor, with very few clothes. Let's look at it this way. Look at Herod's threat, Herod's weakness, Herod's death. Okay, fairly simple. Herod's threat, Herod's weakness, Herod's debt. Death, death. First in verses one to five, Herod's threat. Chapter 12, verse one. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Well, as I say, Herod is, uh, he's not really a legitimate king, and many of the population don't really like him because he's not really an Israelite. But uh, these Christians, they're a nuisance because they're disruptive. Uh, and so he decides to persecute them. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Hey, arresting James and and killing him. They liked that. Let's have another go. A bit of persecution of these Christians. Well, that plays the Jews on side. Well, that's pretty contemporary, isn't it? That happens all over the world, even today. You can be the house of sword and think, well, let's keep the imams happy. What do they want to keep us in power? Keep them on side. You can be the BJP in India, thinking, well, let's have a bit of Christian bashing. That'll make us, uh, that'll assert our religious credentials nicely. That'll galvanize the support of the masses. It was an entirely contemporary strategy. But you've got to wonder what's Peter thinking in verse 4? James has just been killed, and Peter's been arrested. And verse 4 after arresting him, Peter, Herod put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers. 
each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Well, I think you know how that trial's going to end. Peter's got to be thinking, well, I've had a good run. Ten years of, since Pentecost of preaching. I've seen the church grow, but my time is up. What's the church thinking in Jerusalem? Of, uh, I guess you, what you might call the big three. Peter, James, and John, the sort of three closest disciples of Jesus. James, dead. Peter, arrested. Oh, golly. It's not looking quite so good. And so we're told, verse 5, Peter was kept in prison. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. They give themselves intensely to prayer. But I guess at this point in the story, you do see him by the time we get to verses 5, how intimidating Herod must seem. He kills. He arrests. We've already had many of the Christians flee the city in chapter 8 in fear and terror. What are they praying? Lord, get rid of Herod. Lord, save Peter somehow. Would the trial go okay? Even though they knew. Look, we know Jesus is building his kingdom. It's still terrifying for them at this moment in time. They fear for their lives. And so even for you and for me, 2,000 years later, you can have confidence that Jesus is building his kingdom, but don't, don't be surprised if there's a moment where all of a sudden being a Christian is hard. Don't be surprised. Herod's threat, it's a real one. It's a scary one. But let's secondly look at Herod's weakness, because he's not quite as impressive as he seems. You might think there's a touch of paranoia, in fact, to, uh, to Herod. So uh, we, we were told, chapter 12, verse 4, that uh, Peter is guarded by four squads of four soldiers. Uh, verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And you might think, he's a fisherman. You've not arrested Jason Bourne, for goodness sake. You know, 16 men all around him in shifts, and then two, he's locked with two, uh, to two others, Look, maybe Herod knows that back in uh, chapter 4, Peter had escaped prison once, but this seems slight overkill uh, uh, for one man, one prisoner. But you start to realize maybe Herod feels a little bit vulnerable. And then you get this angelic rescue. What, what's the point of this? Well, obviously, the Lord does it, God does it. But also alongside it, Peter is not Jason Bourne. Uh, this is not a very impressive escape by one man because he thinks it's all a dream. So verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Well, Peter is not impressive here. He's sort of wandering on going, this is a nice dream. 
this would be nice, my chains sort of drop away and all the doors just magically open and the guards can't even see what's happening. Well, this is a nice dream. And then he wakes up, verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. What's happened? The Lord has rescued him. I get that, I see that. What else does he say? Herod's clutches, they're not very strong. Herod's hand couldn't hold me. And the community who hated the Christians, they're not going to get what they wanted either. Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many people were gathered were praying. Obviously, that's the narrator's comment. I, I slightly presume that, that, that Peter's been in this nice dream, you know, and then wakes up and goes, oh, that was all real. Whoa, I'm a fugitive, I'm on the run, everyone knows who I am, I'm Peter, I've been preaching for the last 10 years outside the temple, I'm a wanted man. Where do I go? I think it probably is a bit more like that in reality, so he goes. And uh, then you get verses 12 to 17, and I think we're meant to notice again, this is a farce. I think we're meant to laugh when we read this account. Peter, not impressive. The, the rest of these praying disciples, praying earnestly, their prayers are answered. They go, no, don't be ridiculous. That won't have happened. There's farce going on here. I, I think the point, again, is the Lord is in control. Everyone else is a spectator. And so verse 12, everyone's gathered to pray. Then verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it. Brilliant, brilliant, Rhoda. Well done. And exclaimed, Peter's at the door. And everyone else says, well, you're out of your mind, they told her. And she kept insisting it was so. They said, oh, well, it can't be Peter. It must be his angel, whatever. Makes you wonder slightly, what had they been praying? Presumably for Peter to be released in some way. But they didn't expect it this quickly. Maybe they thought, well, Lord, maybe the trial will go well somehow and he'll get released at trial. But I don't know, it seems to me a lovely reminder of at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. They're praying earnestly for Peter and then he gets out, well, not that quickly. We weren't expecting it to happen like that. Anyway, let, we'll get back out to Peter because he's still knocking. Verse 16, Peter kept knocking, and you can imagine he is starting to knock quite loudly now. Hello, yes, it is me. Can you open the door? I'm a fugitive on the run, and people are starting to ask why this man is knocking so hard on the door, and so eventually they do. Verse 17, and they go in, and uh, they're astonished, and no doubt their astonishment is voluble because verse 17, Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet uh, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, that's the brother of Jesus, not the one who's been killed. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he leaves. Before the main point, knowing how the story sort of ends, let me make two obvious comments here. Peter is, the first is this, Peter is released from prison after the church prays. Prayer does not change the Lord but it does change circumstances. 
He chooses to act in response to the prayers of his people. So as one writer put it, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. It's the prayers of God's people that see Peter released. You've got to pray. The second comment would just be a little question. You read this story and I think you're forced to ask, okay, so why does James die and Peter get rescued? And we say, I don't know. The Lord is sovereign. And he'll allow some of his people to suffer and die. And others will not. But overall, the church will grow and triumph. And that knowledge is wonderful. But of course, in the day-to-day of life, hard. I mean, let me amplify a little bit, but you can imagine church the following week and we don't know if they have wives or not but Mrs. James in tears looking across the room at Mrs. Peter holding her husband's hand as they sing together and Mrs. James saying why did I lose my husband and she gets to keep hers why and the answer is I don't know She gets no answer except the Lord presumably saying it had to be this way. It had to be this way. Trust me. I am the one who does all things well. And you will see your husband again. Keep going. There is a mystery to the Lord's providence, his control over all of life. We don't know why one dies and one lives. We don't know. But it is in his purposes and the church grows. But the main point, of course, is verses 18 and 19. Herod is not as strong as he thinks. Verse 18. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Well, you can imagine that's the case as the guards wake up. And there's no small commotion uh, as their key prisoner, who they'd been chained to behind several locked doors and 16 guards, is gone. Well, did you really? I didn't really see who you. All sorts of blaming, no doubt. But as was custom, if you lost your prisoner, you were executed. And so Herod kills them all. But he's not as strong as he thinks. Ah, oh, brilliant, I killed James and that worked well. I'll, I'll do Peter next. Oop. Peter's just gone. And so Herod is the emperor with no clothes. Or in a phrase a friend of mine likes to use, he's Napoleon in a puddle. I love that phrase. You, give, you, know, they are, you get the sense of it, can't you? There's a man who says, look at me. I am impressive. Look at my medals. Look at me. And everyone else says, yeah, but you're stood in a puddle. Look at my empire. Yeah, it's just, it's just like a foot of 
water half an inch deep. You, you think you're very impressive. You rule nothing. You are blind to the fact that you rule nothing. No, no, bow down before me. I am Napoleon in a puddle. Not very impressive. And that is Herod. He's a Napoleon in a puddle. We meet them all the time, probably. Uh, sometimes in your workplace, you may well think, meet a man who thinks he's Napoleon and he rules over a puddle. Uh, he's a tiny fish in an even smaller pond. There are people like that. But here's Herod. Uh, and now the church is beginning to realize that. Here is the emperor with no clothes. They don't need to be scared of him. They can laugh at him. Herod's threat, verses 1 to 5. Herod's weakness, verses 6 to 19, not that impressive. And then last we see Herod's death in verses 20 to 25. Herod goes to Caesarea, uh, verse 20. Then Herod went from uh, Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Well, Caesarea had been the capital of the region under Roman rule, but uh, Herod had pulled the capital back to uh, Jerusalem. But uh, Caesarea, a bit of a significant city. And uh, so Herod visits on the appointed day, may well be his birthday. Now, there's a very long, detailed account of this day in uh, Josephus. The Jewish historian, so not a biblical source, describes the scene of uh, Herod's birthday. And he's gathered. And he had worn, he had uh, woven specially these very elaborate robes in a silver thread. And so Josephus says the sun reflected off him. And it was very impressive. And Josephus records just as Luke does the people saying, verse 22, this is the voice of a God. Not of a man. And you can imagine what an extraordinary moment this was for Herod, age 33, 34. In his 20s, he'd spent a couple of years in prison for bankruptcy, for gambling debts. But it emerged through his childhood connections. The emperors had raised him up, given him rule over all this land. He was ruling over an area uh, as large as his granddad, Herod the Great. He's had the mighty cities of Tyre and Sidon having to sue for peace. Because he's a modern-day Putin. He's got control of the gas reserves, or the bread reserves in this case, and threatens he'll cut them off uh, unless they kowtow to him. So those who've been a nuisance, they've had to come and sort of, you know, so sorry, so sorry. And he stands there, age 33, and thinks, look at me. Look at me. I am probably a god, as they say. This is the voice of a god, not a man, they shouted, verse 22. And verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. Oh. You don't have to think sort of spontaneously, you know, 
<coughs> these worms sort of burst out of his body, a bit like sort of alien John Hurt, <coughs> and this thing bursts out of his stomach. The way Josephus records it is that he's, he, this adulation comes, it's the voice of a god, not of a man, and he collapses on his platform and, and is taken away, and two days later he dies because he had intestinal worms that have clogged up his system. So it, it maybe it's, you know, that's what takes place. It's not that he dies on the spot with worms bursting out. You, you can put these two things together. But the point is, very clear, maybe I am a God. Maybe I am a God, not a man. And the angel of the Lord strikes him down because of his hubris, his arrogance. I'm a God. No, you're dead. Oh, not a God. Now, of course, there is something unique about this man and this moment in history. Herod has been appointed and calls himself king of the Jews. And the Lord says, and now I'm afraid that post is taken now by my son, Jesus Christ. And we'll have no more kings of the Jews in history, thank you very much. That period is done. You are not in the line of David. That period is done. It's over. So there's something unique about Herod and his claim to be king of the Jews. Now that period of history is done with. But in one sense, the, the, the sentiment, the arrogance, well, there will always be those who live that way. You know, in a much tamer sense, even this week, as the, uh, the corruption of a firm such as Cambridge Analytica gets exposed and its founder is sacked. And no doubt... Even three months ago, you have a man such as Alexander Nix saying, or saying on camera to Channel 4, <laughs> uh, unwittingly, I topple governments. I appoint presidents. I am so impressive. People don't know it because I live in the shadows, but I ghost in and ghost out. And we rule the world. We raise them up. We smash them down. You need to hire me, for I am I'm a 21st century God. And in a much milder sense, he now looks very much less impressive. Herod. He looks very threatening. In reality, he's very weak. He says, I'm a God, and the Lord says, no, you're dead. What are we to do with this? Three little things, let me suggest. Have confidence, pray, speak. Have confidence. That is the reason Acts 12 is here. Jesus Christ is growing his kingdom, but it happens through adversity. And you read through the book of Acts and Christians experience uh, shipwreck and famine, injustice in court, capital punishment, uh, imprisonment, and yet the kingdom of Jesus Christ grows. Don't be surprised. When you personally receive flack for being a Christian, when the church does, don't be surprised. These two things run side by side. The kingdom grows. There's adversity and setback. It's timeless. But have confidence that the kingdom does indeed grow. Turbulence comes, but it's just for a while. Pray, secondly. As we saw earlier, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. 
God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Pray. Pray that he grows his kingdom in our city, in the nation, in our lifetime, that we see it. And third and last little thing, speak. Of course, when threat comes, it's very tempting to go quiet. When it's awkward to be a Christian, to speak up that much harder, of course that's the case. In, um, in this book, as I say, the, the, the murder of Stephen Foreman, it didn't come out of the blue. He'd received threats. I mean, pretty explicit threats. Look, if you go down to your center tomorrow, you know, you may well get killed. And he still goes. He kept on speaking about Christ. Of course, the title comes from um, uh, a talk that the husband, Stephen, had given not long before going out there. He's quoting someone else. But says, look, before we go to this hostile country in North Africa, look, we, we, we've died before we go. That is, we've said we don't need this world. We can live without this world because we're sold out on serving Jesus Christ. And we know that even if we die, well, we get raised again. For you and for me, of course, uh, hostility is much more tame. But... For those of us who are Christians, even if you sit here and think bizarrely, I was thinking about becoming a Christian. You just need to know that disapproval, contempt, exclusion, these things come. They will come. They ebb and flow with intensity in history, but they come. you just got to hold the two things together. Jesus Christ is growing his kingdom. He's victorious in the end. But it's always in adversity and in setback. But you've got to look at the example of Herod and think, no, I want to give my life and give serving in my life to Christ. Because what I do for him lasts and everything else is eaten by worms. So have confidence in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, here is an extraordinary story that amidst the brutality of uh, execution, extraordinary uh, rapid death of this man, Herod, there is comedy because for people to think that they're in charge and you are not, to people to think that they are gods and you are not, is the height of stupidity. It's the height of folly. So, Father, would we know that? And would we put our trust in Jesus Christ and his kingdom as it grows? Even when periods, when it's hard, even in periods of contraction, would we know that eventually the turbulence ends and we see the kingdom fulfilled? Father, keep us trusting in him, we pray. Amen.